You're listening to highlights from the One Planet Podcast's interview with Kristen Olson, author of Sweet in Tooth and Claw, Stories of Generosity and Cooperation in the Natural World. This podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. You know, instead of us trying to make order out of chaos, largely out of the chaos that we've created, we can instead look at the world as being held together and look for the places where the connections have been snapped, where the connections have been broken, and when, where we can roll back some of the damage we've done and help those connections heal. I feel so lucky to write about this material about the scientists who are doing the research into how nature works and the people working on the land who are discovering how nature heals. So when I wrote The Soil Will Save Us, one of the really pivotal moments for me was when I was sitting at a table one night trying to make sense out of all these notes that I had. And all of a sudden it just struck me. And I said, oh, plants aren't just takers because the way farmers are approached by all the agrochemical companies that want to sell them products and services, farmers are always told that plants, when they're growing, they just suck up all these nutrients out of the ground and they leave nothing behind so that if farmers want to have a good crop, they have to rush in there with these chemicals to replace the mineral nutrients that the plants have taken out of the soil. That's only a little bit of the story, that plants are also givers. So I think all of us learn about photosynthesis, about plants using their leaves to gather uh, carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, and they convert that carbon fuel, a carbon-based syrup that they use to grow branches and leaves and flowers and roots. And in the process, they release oxygen. But it's, it's only part of the story. The other part is that plants aren't just doing it for themselves. They are sharing like 50% or more of that carbon fuel that they've created through their roots to that vast underground community of soil microorganisms. So there's this give and take. There's marvelous mutualism that's going on there. And so learning about that in the last book was such an important moment for me to see all these plants as not just individual living things, but these incredible ecosystems. And knowing that, I wanted to learn more about mutualism, which is the mutually beneficial relationship between one or more species. One of the things that was so interesting was talking to some of the researchers who are studying mutualisms among flowering plants and bees and other pollinators, but mostly in this one case, they were both bees and they were studying a fun thing called cheating, where some bees buzzing around and the plants have made a nectar that's in their flowers to entice the bees to come and visit. And the bees come to take some nectar and to take a little bit of pollen. And in the process, they get covered with pollen and then they go off to other flowers searching for more nectar and they distribute that pollen. So they're fertilizing other plants. But one of the researchers was studying why some bees, instead of going in through the top, they chew a hole in the bottom of the flower and they come in that way to get the nectar. And they're not getting covered with pollen and they're not conducting that third-party mating. But what's really interesting is that plants seem to be okay with producing an overabundance of nectar. Even bees that don't perform their part in the mutualism can partake in that feast. So it's one of those lovely puzzles about generosity that exists in nature. It's not just a strict accounting all the time. It's often exceptionally generous. You know, there's more nectar 
then all those bees can take care of. I think that my view of nature was just so enriched by knowing, you know, all these complex levels at which things work together. And for me, then it went just beyond the understanding that we ourselves, humans and all animals and all plants and all fungi, are made from cells that developed billions of years ago. So the first cells in nature were single-celled organisms. And then by a mutualism, by one of those single-celled organisms absorbing another, consuming but not eating another. So they became one living inside the other, kind of like coral. You know, coral is a little tiny animal that has a little tiny alga living inside it. So those new cells that were formed from that act of cooperation became the basis for all multicellular life. So I mean, just even knowing that, that from the cell up, all of living things, except for single-celled organisms, all living things are made from cooperation. So that's just a different view of our history as organisms. And I think that, you know, those of us who are worried about the state of the world, I honestly think that's everybody, even if people don't express that in the same way. You know, I hear a lot of people say how sorry they are for children, you know, for the world that they're going to inhabit. But on the other hand, I think that I'm very excited for some of what the children are going to get. You know, here in the Western United States, there is a big movement to remove dams from rivers to restore those watersheds. You know, that wasn't something that anybody in my youth ever talked about. The people in my youth were only convinced that that technology and development were the path to progress. And I think that the children now can learn a different view. They can learn that that undeveloping can be path to a healthier future. They can learn the complexity of nature. I mean, when, again, back when I was a child, people did not think there was any intelligence in animals. They thought that dogs were this reward and punishment machines. Listening to a podcast with Jane Goodall a couple of days ago, and the person who was interviewing her asked if she had learned of the intelligence of animals by studying chimpanzees. And she said, no, I knew that from my dog when I was seven years old. So I think that there is a completely different story that children now are being taught about the world of animals. Can't help but think that the new view from science of the intelligence of nature and the intelligence among animals is going to make the children who are coming up now make better decisions and understand their place in the natural world better than we ever did. I'm naturally drawn to optimism, which is a gift from my sweet father. I actually worried that I might just be soft-headed until I read this quote from activist and Professor Angela Davis. I don't think we have any alternative other than remaining optimistic. Optimism is an absolute necessity, even if it's only optimism of the will and pessimism of the intellect, she said. But it's hard to hang on to optimism. Like others, probably you, I panic at the growing, undeniable evidence of humanity's damage to the natural world around us. And fear will never get our shit together to do anything about it as our politics and cultures continue to clash in the nastiest of ways. 
And really, you highlight what is so important. Many of us are just coming around to understand that it's not really the fittest individual that survives. It's that collective adaptive intelligence. And in some ways, our insistence on dominating is actually destroying us. It definitely is destroying us. It definitely destroys ecosystems. And I think, you know, part of the reason that this story of cooperation among living things appeals to me so much, I mean, in my book, Sweet and Tooth and Claw, I look at the work of lots of scientists who are sort of studying how nature works and discovering all these incredible connections among living things that certainly help them thrive and help ecosystems thrive. But I think it's this story of cooperation is important in terms of the story that we tell ourselves about nature and seeing as how we are part of nature, you know, that it's important that we see ourselves as possibly a partner instead of a destroyer. I think that we have held on to the perspective that nature is all about competition and conflict. And when we shift that, when we look at nature as this vast web of interconnection and cooperation, and of course, competition and conflict in there, obviously, in some places, but when we look at this vast web of cooperation and collaboration, I think that it changes our view. It changes our view of what's possible, you know, instead of us trying to make order out of chaos, largely out of the chaos that we've created. We can instead look at the world as being held together and look for the places where the connections have been snapped, where the connections have been broken, and when, where we can roll back some of the damage we've done and help those connections heal. We humans are a massively cooperative species. And that's why we dominate the world to the extent that we do. We just, we're very good at working together. And stories, metaphors are a lot of what drives us to work together, that drives us towards goals. So that's why I thought it was very important to push against the metaphors that have informed so much of our culture for the last couple of hundred years. So we have the idea of survival of the fittest day, not directly from Darwin, argued that the growing human population would outstrip the Earth's resources and there would inevitably be death and weakness in parts of the population. And that that was kind of that was kind of a good thing because it would balance out society. You know, we would lose the weakest members. And Darwin had read Malthus and took that idea of progress through struggle and the weeding out of weaker members by the harsh exigencies of nature. And that was how he came up with his theory of natural selection, you know, that the fossil record showed that certain animals and plants, living things, could not survive in given the circumstances. And then it was Herbert Spencer who read Darwin and who came up with the line, survival of the fittest. Those are phrases that have stuck with our society and I think our thinking about how nature works and how we work. So those are phrases that came out of science that affect the culture. And the culture, of course, affects science in terms of what we push science to ask for, what we tell science we want to know about the world. And I'm hoping that the new crop of scientists who are looking at all of these cooperative relations among living things, how that holds together ecosystems, how that determines how species can survive 
that that new crop of scientists will inform and reform the metaphors that we use, the stories that we tell ourselves about how nature works, how we work, how the culture works. That's what I'm hoping will happen. We hope you've enjoyed this program and listening to highlights of this podcast. If you'd like to get involved in One Planet Podcast or learn more about environmental projects, click on the subscribe button. Thank you for listening.